You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the Anarchaeologist Podcast. It is, yes, me back again, the Anarchaeologist. A little bit, a little bit kind of uh, not so sure of myself, but what we'll try and do is try and reassess where we are. Anarchaeologically speaking, if I can actually say that correctly. So I've just been at the CIFA conference, and yeah, there's a couple things I really want to talk about. So without much further ado, play out the intro. Play it again, Sam. Talking about somebody, uh, you know, the the great leader talking about how we have to go backwards to to go forwards. And maybe that's what's needed for archaeology. Maybe post-processionalism is not the way to go. I've heard a lot of people talk about how um, processionalism is perhaps the way forward. You know, when we talk about the ways in which we combine archaeology with other things, no, no, I think it's important that we look at it through a scientific method, and we don't get caught up in these stupid social contexts. I mean, who cares who these people are? Who cares? I don't know what they're going to think, what they're going to say. Who does? Really? I really don't know. But anyway, look, um, I think that we should go back and start studying things from the ground up. Because the only thing that we can ever know about the past is what's in our hands today. Let's open up our line to callers. And if you have anything to say, you know, please give us a phone. Please let us know what you think. Look, I, I, I'm with our leader at this point. Your leader is <laughs> so correct. And, uh, you know, there are people who, who will be blue in the face telling me otherwise. What he says is correct. Hotter is useless, and I completely agree with him. So if you've listened to my show for a number of years, and yes, unfortunately it has been years, hasn't it? 
Um, you, you'll know that I do live on the left side of politics, and politics for me is a very natural part of the way in which we socialize and politicize things. Now, I, I know politics is perhaps a dirty word to some people, and I understand why. Politics seems to be the problem that everything comes down to. But on the other side, I think there are certain things in which we need to talk about politics. And it's not going to be no politics to fix politics. Instead, it's going to be good politics. Out of that, I want to also talk about how we can move forward with archaeology. And how can we make conferences better places for everyone in the future. I'll also kind of roll in a little bit about the presentation I, <laughs> I unfortunately missed at the conference. So first of all, I met a lot of great people at uh, the CIFA conference down in Newcastle. It was held at the University of Newcastle, uh, and it was fantastic to meet people again. It's it's something amazing to it's kind of, you know, you see these people online and everything, and you, you love interacting with them, and then you meet them in person, and they're, they're the person you expect. There's been a lot of new people I've met as well. Um, Jim Brightman, I, I met him. He's been... You know, he's really, really cool, and he's a great guy, and yeah, I really, uh, he's one of the people who's really stuck in my mind. Um, I had a chance again to talk with uh, Mark Spenier, who's a Dutch archaeologist. He's really cool, uh, and actually the conversation I had with him, um, I'm kind of going to be talking a little bit more about today, and I will hopefully have him on a show sometime in the future. He's a great person to talk to. He's got a lot of great ideas. And honestly, um, he did a great presentation as well uh, about happiness in archaeology. Uh, definitely, um, we'll have a lot of, we have a lot of the sessions recorded. And so, you know, uh, if you ever want to check out what's happened at a conference, check out the YouTube channel Recording Archaeology. Um, that actually ties in neatly with the reason I was there at the conference was actually to record shows. And I have Doug Rox McQueen at Open Access Arc to thank uh, for allowing me to help him out recording sh uh, sessions. What it means is I get to kind of meet people as uh, not just an audience member, but as somebody who actually records the shows. And it's, it is a little different. Um, so uh, in that vein... Uh, I think I want to kind of start over with the conference theme, which was kind of a global profession. And I think it's important to realize that archaeology has to always be global. Uh, archaeology always has to have an impact around the world because ultimately our combined histories is what archaeology is. You know, obviously we can offer specialisms and we can offer, say, we can say, well, this region has this kind of archaeology, this region is another kind of archaeology. But for the best part of it, humanity's history belongs all, to all of hum humanity. Now, the way that actually happens in the practical sense can be different. And I think that when we talk about whose history is represented, that's maybe a different story than what I'm talking about. I mean, in principle, archaeology that we do here in Britain should be available to archaeologists in Japan. It should be available to archaeologists in Chile. It should be available to archaeologists in Antarctica. I think that 
when we talk about history and world history, we should be able to make that available to the world. And I think following out of that, the standards and procedures that archaeologists follow are very important. There's a kind of rule in science that says that, you know, anything you do, you have to be, it has to be repeatable. And the reason is that only through the repeated and rigorously tested methodology can we actually understand how parts of the world works. So within that, um, archaeology needs to have standards done. What can get away in the way of standards is usually bad practice, bad practice that's rushed, or perhaps it has to meet certain criteria for funding. You know, there, there are a number of pressures uh, from, if you're an academic, to find something that's relevant, if you are working commercial, to make sure a job's done on time. It's sometimes difficult to do the job up to a high standard. Maybe you're not experienced. Maybe you just don't have the right tools. There are a lot of reasons why things might be substandard. But what's important is that we all strive to achieve a standard, maybe a minimum standard, to which all work can be judged. And within that, we can understand how archaeology is recorded, how archaeology can be compared, and that we know for future use that we have a good record for other people to then use and study with. Maybe this is getting a bit dry for some people, and I understand that. I mean, one of the sessions I was at was about ethics and professionalism across um, the entire world. And it caused some controversy because we had an all-male panel, an all-male panel of roughly around the same age range, uh, from middle age to maybe later in age, from about 30 to 50. And I think, you know, obviously, I think it's better for somebody else to tackle entirely why a manal is such a problem, an all-male panel. Um, but I think it demonstrates a rigidity and a hubris of the practices that have already happened in archaeology. Archaeology is still seen as a very male-dominated uh, subject uh, by the public, whereas the majority of people in undergrad are female. So it's quite interesting to find that such, such a large disparity between uh, the people who are practicing archaeology at an early career level and the people who are in senior manager positions. But that's just the figure of time in some ways. So it was interesting that people pointed out that an all-male panel was being talked about when it came to professional ethics. And, um, and from that, we have to kind of talk about what the universal standards for archaeologists are. I mean, we're dealing with dead people and dead people's remains. We're making the records of past people. And if we don't make those records properly, then obviously something's wrong. I think it's it's in the controversies where we find the strongest test for any of our kind of way of doing things. Consider, for example, the controversy over the Kenwick man. 
I don't want to go into too much detail about the Kenwick Man because you can find a lot of information online and it is definitely something that a lot of people have already touched upon and a lot of people who are a bit more knowledgeable than me can talk about. But in essence, the Kenwick Man represents an ethical issue in the sense of what is the best practice when it comes to competing stakeholders for the past. Imagine two groups of people wanted to say, well, they should have access to a certain part of the past. We'll talk about tangible heritage, physical heritage that you can hold in your hands. How can we meaningfully say that one person has more access to it than another? Why should, in essence, scientists have a monopoly on access to the past? What makes their goal greater? And why can't there be a compromise? Let's think about bone A. Let's talk about bone A. Bone A is found in a cemetery. It's only about 200 years old. And a family say that they ha that's their ancestor. They don't want anybody else to touch it. They don't want any sort of analysis on it. But they know that their family's grave is in that cemetery and they wish nobody else to touch it. Scientists are very interested in this because of an event that happened around 200 years ago in the area. The scientists say that not only do they want to study the bone, they also want to keep the bone as an archive and a record of this era. How do we properly understand the context of this situation? And let's consider this. In the space and context of anti-intellectualism and anti-expertise that we've currently come to be very familiar with in terms of alternative facts and fake news is there kind of isn't there kind of more than one perspective here obviously the scientists know that they have to fight for everything because in the current climate nobody's giving scientists a chance that's why there was the march for science happening recently in places all around the world because there are people who still deny climate change despite mounting evidence. There are people who deny pollution from large manufacturers, even though there are many tests to show that pollution has an adverse effect all the way to the ocean level. We have corals being bleached by high temperatures. We have animals being tracked, trapped and damaged by floating debris. But in this realm of anti-science, Obviously, to be resilient, scientists have to really stand up and not give any ground. But is it right for them to do that? Is it right for scientists to really fight on every single level? Because where they have to fight for is funding, and anything that's particularly important or significant may bring in that funding. Or consider the family's side. They understand that these scientists will want to lock this bone away forever, but they really have a strong family connection to this body. They feel as if they know this person through this person's uh, memories and through this person's 
um, heirlooms. You know, obviously, 200 years is not going to be a direct family memory, but you have some sort of proper connection. It's not like separated by thousands of years, you know? And on their side, you know, it's maybe understandable that they want their their ancestor to be with them and not with, like, away for hundreds of years inside a box kept in a containment space. This is just a very small hypothesis on what the competing ideas are when it comes to standards and ethics in archaeology. I'm sure there are better real-world examples, and uh, I would encourage anybody who listens to the show to maybe share some of those examples. I, I might go and have a look and um, see if we can talk about these things. Because the thing is, ethics is not just some wishy-washy, these are the words you have to use. We're talking about practice here. We're talking about how to deal with difficult situations. We're talking about the standards to which people record properly what they find. And it was interesting to hear in the session at the conference how different bodies, like the Register of Professional Archaeologists in America, work with the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists in the UK. And how these kind of ethics and standards, they kind of mish together at some points. There's very big similarities. And it was also interesting to hear from the <clears throat> the association uh, in Japan as well, and what problems they have with ensuring ethics and professional conduct is brought through. But focusing on CIFA, because I, I know about the Institute for Archaeology in the UK, there's sometimes a conversation about um, enforcement and what actually comes of things. A lot of people... Um, who I spoke to kind of off the record said that they felt that CIFA was often very slow to I actually take up on ethical concerns or that ethical concerns were seen as a, a very detached process. Maybe that was maybe that's a good thing. But it's interesting to know that, you know, these organizations exist to enforce ethics and professional conduct. But how often is that wielded? And is that a positive sign of how archaeology is ethical? Or is it just a lack of enforcement? Again, it's a question that I'd open up to the floor. I'd open up to you. I mean, are you a part of CIFA? Are you a part of an organization where you work? What do you think of organizations? Should an industry have an organization that everyone has to be a part of? What if somebody doesn't choose to sign up for that? Should they still be allowed to practice? Can an archaeologist be an archaeologist without being a member of an institution? These are all questions that the institution has to ask itself. And I think it's something we have to ask ourselves as archaeologists or people interested in the past. What is the minimum standard? What is the best thing to do? Because unfortunately, we can't just dig in the sand. We can't just dig in the dirt for nothing. There has to be a reason for it. And that's what's really important. And, you know, with a conservative government now in par in the UK, there has been a focus on how the Tories will affect planning permission 
there was the neighbor neighborhood planning and and uh, housing act that kind of caused a bit of um, controversy earlier where it kind of basically opened up the floodgates for what was an appropriate assessment or what was whether archaeology was really necessary or not it's easy to see how a developer would see archaeology as not necessary or not important and that caused alarm i think you know obviously conservative party in the uk um are very much business friendly or big business friendly and in in that sense you know there's a kind of degree of direction of lack of regulation but i i, I kind of it concerns a lot of archaeologists because we all know that the less the developer has to do or has to pay for the more money it can make so from a point of profit removing archaeology kind of just manages to bump up your um your kind of your profit there i i also want to you know i also and, and that's obviously the political kind of kind of oversight high politics and you know planning permission and the regulations that developers have to follow how that kind of dovetails into politics of archaeology whether you know the change in politics and the political atmosphere can also change how the profession works because if companies are no longer required to hire archaeologists well how how many how could the commercial units survive how you know because you have to you have to look at and be quite realistic about the scenario is that developers want to make profit that's that's absolutely fine you know that's what they're made for and what concerns me and other people is that this profit motive basically will erase any chance of archaeology being done so the next time you're kind of considering about the politics of the UK and how it affects history and heritage, you know, there are so many things left in the UK to discover and understand. You know, we haven't dug up everything and we have so much left to learn. There is no space that doesn't isn't important. There's no kind of place that is completely, you know, blank or like a terra firma. Every part of the archaeology, every part of the UK has some sort of part history. It's some sort of heritage. And all we want to do as archaeologists is find out what that is. Then you can bring out your bulldozers. Fine, go ahead. But we want to find out what's there. And that's not a problem. And to be absolutely honest, I think that it's very reasonable for archaeologists to want to do that and to want to be part of the planning process. So the next time you're thinking about who you want to vote for, and you do care about the past, please consider about the way in which conservatives have, you know, influenced policy in the past. And if you feel that to that in that way, the conservative policy is something positive, and maybe it will help archaeology, then go ahead, vote for conservatives but otherwise have a look at the other parties phone up your local um m ml m mp mla um mep 
whomever is in your local constituency and ask them what their policy is and what sort of policies they vote for when it comes to the past. I mean, come on, this is an archaeology podcast. Of course, we're going to care about uh, policies that are focused on the past. But, you know, you don't need to be out in the street making a protest banner uh, to actually have some effect or be doing something. You know, perhaps you're kind of phoning up and saying, look, what sort of heritage stuff do you focus on? Gives that local MLA or MEP or MP the kind of impetus to actually make a change in their voting pattern that they can finally say, well, you know, I voted this way because one of my constituents or many of my constituents felt like this. And that's the thing, you know, when we talk about a political apathy, which is very, very kind of pertinent to today. um, I mean, I think there are many people have been talking about a voting fatigue that it seems that every single year or every single couple of months, there's a new vote going out. You know, I, I remember voting in the Scottish independence referendum. I remember voting for uh, voting in Brexit, not for. Um, I'm sure that's not a surprise. And now there's going to be a snap general election. There is too many things to vote on. You know, it's absolute madness. And that shouldn't, that should not dissuade you from the big decisions. I think I'm going to wrap up this bit by kind of saying you know, archaeology is important. The way you talk about it is important. And it's possible that the way you vote is important as well. And this doesn't just apply to the UK. In America as well, you see that Trump is defunding uh, a large number of um, of kind of arts programs. He's uh, dropping funding for science. I mean, the rise of the alternative, um, you know, Department of uh, NASA, the alternative Department of the Wildlands. I think they're really, really cool ideas. And, you know, I completely get why people are pushing back. And we need to push back more. We need to support where we can. Because I find that archaeology is very small. And you can make an impact. You know, you can get to know people. You can talk to people. And that's what's important. When I was speaking to Mark Spenger, um, who was the Dutch archaeologist I'd mentioned in the intro there, you know, he talked to me about, you know, we, we'd gotten to this discussion about repatriation. And I don't, you know, my views on repatriation are probably very well known in the fact that I think the British Museum should <laughs> return everything. But, you know, Mark kind of said, look, you know, you can't just force people to think like that and force everybody to think like you think. And he's right. You know, I, I cannot force, no matter how hard I want, <laughs> everybody to think like I do, because that's not important. That's not the way forward. But I I do want to stand up for something. And the thing I want to stand up for is the fact that we need to move forward. We cannot cling on to a past that is not ours. You know, this is where I draw the distinction of a universal heritage. We have to do archaeology to understand everything. But to move forward and to try and say, look, we stole, as, as, a, as an institution, the British Museum, 
the British Empire stole and looted countries. Um, I think there are places and certain artifacts and groups of artifacts that are less defensible than one another. And, you know, Mark was saying to me, you know, it's important to give people a way out. It's important to kind of actually provide a reciprocity, reciprocal kind of um, turnaround for people. And this, this isn't very difficult. Returning items and maybe organizing, um, you know, a yearly lend of those items is, is not very difficult. You look at museums, and I think the statistics, and correct me if I'm wrong, is museums display about 8% of their entire collections. The rest of the collections are behind closed doors, and some of the collections never see the light of day. You've got these collections hidden away in storerooms. And of course, people say they can't be returned. Like, okay, let, let's say there's an item that belongs to a certain group of people, and they ask for it back. You've never displayed it, it's always in storage, you never intend to display it. What's the problem in giving those items back? Maybe you can forge a, a kind of connection. I mean, think about it. Suddenly, you yes, well, we've returned these items, and uh, the um, group of organization who've received them are very happy with us, and they've provided us with information that might be relevant to are kind of exhibits in a different way. I don't see what the issue is there. I think that when we talk about repatriation, it's not just what's been given away, but it's the manner in which it's being returned and what that represents. Sometimes it really doesn't belong in a museum. Sometimes it belongs with the people where it comes from. You know, especially after, you know, colonial powers retreated and these countries became independent, a lot of the history is still steeped in the colonial kind of era. It would be wonderful to actually return items that were pre-colonial to areas that are now post-colonial in an attempt to link people to their heritage. Because that's, that's, that's really what's important. We in the West, and well, we in the UK are particularly blessed with the fact that we have access to a very ancient history. But we're not the only ones with ancient history. Ancient history is everywhere. Everywhere in the world has an ancient history. And that's really important for people. I think, to me, taking away people's ancient history is just not the right way of doing it. But repatriation doesn't mean you have to give up everything. And I think Mark was right when he talked about giving people a way out, helping people understand, and that's what I want to do. I want to help people understand that repatriation is not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. It doesn't imply fault. Because for me, ultimately, the fault lies in keeping with this these items not with having them taken in the first place. The fault that rests on the shoulders of people nowadays and museums and institutions nowadays is not the fault of stealing in the first place. It's not the fault of looting these items. It's not the fault of taking them. 
it's the fault of keeping them. Nobody's blaming the British Museum for looting Nigeria and taking the Benin bronzes. It's it's basically saying, why are you keeping them? And I'll make it very clear that the Benin bronzes are also kept in the University of Berlin. Ooh, better check that. And, you know, the uh, the um, in Berlin as well. So, it, I mean, it's not even just the British Museum at this point, you know? We can change the culture of what we keep our hold of, and we can make things better for people around the world. And to me, that's not just a political act in some sort of twisted guise of, oh, I guess we have to do this. It's also a social act. It's of benefit to people to have their own history. Imagine somewhere in the world they had Neolithic British pottery and they would not give it back. It was a significant find, by the way, and it was very, very important. Imagine they wouldn't give it back. How much up in arms we would be about that. And yet, when it comes to the British Museum, we see it feel so comfortable with holding on to this stuff because we're the best museum in the world. And to me, that just doesn't make sense. Maybe it makes sense to you. I'd love to hear it. And I, I wonder if you agree with me in some way. There's no right or wrong here, really. Apart from my opinion, that's 100% right. But there's no, there's no right or wrong opinion. There are variations. And I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about that. Finally, I want to talk about the future of conferences and how conferences are so important. Um, in particular, there is a conference going to be happening on Twitter. A conference on Twitter? Are you mad? And, of course, the person sorting that out is the wonderful Lorna Richardson. We'll talk a little bit more about that after the break. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm the host of the Heritage Voices podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, and indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. So, the Public Archaeology Twitter conference is um is has been organized by Lorna Richardson and it's about um it's a it's basically about 50 different pairs tweeted out online. Now I think that's really really interesting. Um by the way it's all happening on the 28th of April and it's on Twitter uh under the hashtag PATC. So public archaeology Twitter conference. It's absolutely fantastic and I think that for a lot of people the standard way of conferences um, isn't always the best way of running things you know we shouldn't always just rely on the normal way of doing things we have to innovate we have to think up new ideas of and ways of doing things I don't think it's enough I don't think it's enough for us to just sit idly by while things continued the way they always have. I think 
we should make strides. And sometimes things don't work, and sometimes things will. I think that a Twitter conference is a fantastic thing. I'm going to read a little bit out from the uh, blog post about it, and I kind of, to give you an overview, what's happened. The conference has been organized, being inspired by the World Seabird Conference that happened on Twitter. Um, this conference, this the Public Archaeology Twitter Conference, is a Twitter-only conference, and it will start at 9.15 British Standard Time on Friday the 28th of April 2017. The public 2017, the 2000 Public Archaeology Twitter Conference has over 50 papers from a wide variety of locations across the world, and paper timings will run all day, so that the conference can cover multiple time zones. And uh, there's a specific website that will help you find out uh, all the different information for all the different con um, conference goers. And uh, this is very much a response to issues of funding and accessibility. Um, a lot of the time, conferences are a couple of days long. People have to take time out of work or they have to take time out of research to go. They have to arrange maybe childcare. They have to get there in the first place and then they have to pay an entrance fee and etc. etc. These costs, they all kind of add up. And for some people, it's just too much of a cost for the return. But conferences are a great way to network. They're a great way to get to know people. They're a great chance. And it worries me that some people don't have the same access as others. And I, so I think that having a social media-based conference is a great way for moving forward when we think about who has access to these conferences and is there a better way of doing the conference? Is there a better way of disseminating information? I still like conferences, obviously, in flesh, and I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to go and have the access to funding to go. And, um, you know, I, I completely understand that. When I, when I go, it is very much a privilege of mine. What I will be doing is I'll be paying attention on the 28th to the Twitter conference. Uh, if anybody's interested in learning more, um, you can tweet at Lorna Richardson or hashtag uh, PATC. Uh, for more information, uh, there's a website as well, which I'll link in the show notes. And that will give you a broad overview of what's happening and what um, is expected of contributors, how they will talk about their papers. That's, that's that's really cool. I mean, I, I'm very much um, interested in new ways of digital media, new forms of digital media. And as such, we did a live stream event at the conference. It was held on the 20th from 6 to 8 p.m. And uh, we were live streaming on Twitch. Unfortunately, at uh, this time of speaking, we've had a few technical issues, which means the, archi the broadcast was not archived. Um, so we have nothing to show for it, basically. Um, of course, Doug will let me know that, uh, um, yeah, he was right and that technology will not always match up. So, yeah, that's not great. But despite not having a record of it, it went really well. It was amazing. It was fantastic. We had, you know, um, I had 
Mr. Soup from RQ Soup sitting down with myself. We had Gemma from the um, Diggers Forum, which is a special interest group from the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists. And she was kind of, she does kind of blogging. She does Twitter stuff. Um, and then I also had Emily, who's from the Equality and Diversity uh, Committee, which is also one of the special interest groups from the Chartered Institute. And, um, you know, she does the main Twitter for that group and she also um, uses the Facebook page. So, I mean, we're all coming from kind of a, like a digital and social media kind of background. And we, we had great discussions about what the platform means, who actually uses the platform. And we had a lot of topics about trolling and who, like, what happens when you're a public-facing Twitter account versus a personal one, how to interact with people who are being obnoxious and brash with you. You know, uh, Mr. Soup was talking about how he'd been personally attacked. They found out personal information about him and he'd had horrible things sent in the post. Um, you know, to me, it was a great learning experience. And we also talked about how to make things better, how to improve what we did to make things better. There are conversations within the, um, you know, between the audience and the guests, the panel were absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I, I'm really sad that we didn't have an archived broadcast of that. You know, we're going to look into why that happened. Um, but I mean, this is something we'd like to do more often. It was a really great experience. And I, for one, would definitely love to do it again. And, it actually is something that I then well, I'm hoping to put forward for next year. Maybe we can have more kind of live panels, more informal discussions, more informal kind of ways of presenting information. Um, unfortunately, I then was a bit ill and was unable to do my own presentation on podcasting. Um, so unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that, but... I'm planning to kind of sort that out and get a podcast about podcasting. Um, how ridiculous that sounds. A podcast about podcasting out there in the future as part of my presentation. Um, so definitely listen up for that. And mainly because I think it's so important that we try different things and uh, do different things in in ways to really... In, encourage archaeology to move forward. Archaeology doesn't need to be in the past just because it studies the past. Sometimes we can do new things. We can think new things. We can be on the forefront of everything. That's so important. And that's really where I want to kind of finish off the show and say, look, everyone, you can do something important. You can be someone important. You can do something great. You just need to be willing enough to break that frontier and do something else. You know, it's not rocket science. Don't worry about being the first person to do something. Don't worry about being on the frontier or not knowing how to do something. People will help you. People have helped me and I will help anybody I can. You know, if, you, if you're interested in doing anything media, you know, I, I will try and help you as best I can. I'll get you in contact with the best people. You know, 
when it comes to archaeology, we all help each other. And that was the best thing about the conference is just reinforced how ready people were to help each other. Because in archaeology, you're not alone. You're not by yourself. It's not just you. There are so many other people out there and they've gone through the same things as you have. We can do it. We can do it. And it doesn't mean it it doesn't matter what that is. I just want to sign off with saying, you know what? You're awesome. You listen to this podcast, of course. But don't worry about what you could be doing. Because if you plan ahead, you can sort anything out. I just want to say the door of me, when you want to contact me on Twitter, it's always open. If you want to contact me on any other sort of way um, Tristan at Archaeology uh, Archaeology Podcast Network you can always get in contact with me I will want to help you anyway um, I just want to say thank you um, to listen, for listening and staying with me this long um, until next time uh, probably next month sometime <laughs> you know we still got you know the 365 days of archaeology if you haven't listened to it yet um, definitely go and check that out that's our kind of daily podcast i don't know why we've done it (laughs) i still don't know but hopefully you'll find that interesting and i hope you like my kind of like comedy part bits at the start i'm kind of just messing with them because you know i like doing funny voices uh but just let me know what you think all right well thank you very much for listening all the best been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com